You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This segment is made possible by an educational grant from Shire Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to Updates from the Mayo Clinic, focusing on primary care pediatrics and child mental health. Here's your host, Dr. Peter S. Jensen, a childhood and adolescent psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. This is Dr. Peter Jensen from the Mayo Clinic series update on primary care child mental health. Delighted especially today to have with us Dr. Danielle Rock, the Chair of Pediatrics and Vice President at Maimonides Infants and Children's uh, Hospital in Brooklyn, as well as Professor of Pediatrics at NYU. Danielle and I go a long ways back. Danielle, I'm so thrilled you're on. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here to speak with you, Peter. Well, you know, Danielle, I remember some of our very first experiences together. We're working together after 9-11, and as you developed some very innovative programs, you took to primary care practices and primary care providers across really a three-state area, as I recall. It's been some time, but trauma is still with us, it seems. Yes, and I think, Peter, in our lifetime, it's unlikely to go away. So, yes, you're correct. Trauma is with us, and children and families and communities certainly experience the effects of trauma. Yes. You know, I was thinking, uh, both going drawing back on our experience, but the 9-11 seemed to open the door for a lot of primary care providers to think about some of these larger mental health issues. Can you say more why this is so important for the pediatrician family practitioner, why this isn't the province of mental health specialists solely? Right. So the most obvious is that families are familiar with pediatricians, right? They begin sometimes prenatally. They know they develop a relationship, a longitudinal relationship with their pediatrician who follows them through the child's early years and later years on to many of us follow kids until they go off to college. So it is actually the natural sort of environment for families who have trusted a clinician to raise issues that are of concern to them. And the other is that children uh, often present in primary care settings, for example, without the label here, I've been traumatized. They present with their symptoms. They present with their belly aches and their headaches and their difficulty sleeping. And so it is where we tend to see these things surface. So one, the relationship, and then the symptoms present, and we have to be listening hard enough to understand when these things present in primary care settings and how to sort it out and provide support for children and for the, their parents. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking how uh, something like uh, uh, 9-11 or Sandy or Katrina, they or the Boston incident, they all get in the news and people think, oh my goodness, look at the effects of this. But I'm wondering what you see and what you think our primary care listeners probably see that don't hit the news as a trauma that's affect everyone, but it is a trauma in their lives. What should they be looking for? Great question. So, you know, unfortunately, kids are exposed to more commonly violence within their homes, violence in their communities, abuse uh, and neglect. So those are the bread and butter things that in fact don't necessarily hit the news unless a child dies. So that physicians have to be attuned to asking some screening questions, not only about children's symptoms, but their social 
um, environment to understand if they're being traumatized in certain circumstances. And often if we don't ask those questions, you know, is your home a safe place for you, asking the parent, you know, is there intimate partner violence, or has your child experienced a a traumatic loss? Uh, We may not get those answers. So I think those are the things that don't necessarily hit the newspapers, but in fact are really important for us to screen for in terms of symptoms and also to screen for in terms of our communication with families. And um, it really is important to understand with children that if their parents are not doing well, they're not doing well. So we need to address the health of both the parent and the child because the parent will be in a better position to support that child. Maybe one thing I can say as a a commentary, too, is that I mentioned stressors, common life stressors. So what are those? Certainly sibling rivalry, uh, certainly conflicts with friends, school demands, social demands. We know that part of the normal coping process is that kids are are stressed a little bit, but then they develop coping mechanisms to be able to to no to to sort of grow from those experiences. When we say trauma, we mean something that actually is different from that when a child has experienced something that actually threatens their own uh, uh, safety in their lives or the safety of a loved one, and they may emerge from that with some coping skills, but it may overwhelm them that they're not able to emerge from that with sort of resiliency to be able to cope with the flood of symptoms that come with that. So I think that's where the the pediatrician or the family physician or the nurse practitioner can play an important role in asking the important questions about what's happening in children's lives and give them an opportunity to talk about that with family and certainly older children and even younger children to get a sense of what's happening at home. Do they feel safe at home? Do they feel safe at school? Do they feel safe in their own communities? You know, I like the way that you've characterized that. I mean, in essence, you're saying, look, lots of stresses happen in life, but here's a situation where the stress is so great that one's normal coping mechanisms can be overwhelmed. And one's just kind of, uh, if you will, developed an alarm reaction to how significant that stress would be. You know, if if you were thinking of alarm symptoms or alarm reactions that are suggestive of, you know, has this child been traumatized, what kind of symptoms do you look for? Should we be thinking about in primary care? Right. So I'll give you sort of more common language. So some of the things we could say is, you know, if a kid is really jumpy, what does that mean? You know, it's a, it's it's not a medical term, but increased arousal. You know that they they or they're thinking about. It. And kids oftentimes, you know, we we use child life a lot in in my hospital at the children's hospital, and we have children who draw, for example, and we'll find that children who have been traumatized actually are drawing over and over again an experience that they've had, so re-experiencing that, and um, not wanting to re-experience that, so avoiding certain situations, withdrawing, or being really vigilant about what's going on, not letting down your guard. We see that differently for young children, but we need to be attuned when we see those kinds of things in terms of their play or their interactions with other individuals. These are things that are symptomatic, perhaps, of a traumatic experience and delve a little bit uh, deeper. Can you also see things like aggression or disruptive behavior in the absence of what looks like alarm symptoms? 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great question. One of the things that we do in primary care is, again, we're not presented with a label. So a kid comes in with symptoms, let's say they're disruptive. You have to kind of tease out what's happening, right? That they're aggressive. Is it, are they reacting? Is this, you know, is this part of oppositional defiant or conduct problem? Is it because of something in their social environment that makes them feel unsafe? We know in adolescence, for example, in terms of depression, that sometimes they present as pretty hostile. And you've got to sift through that and say, what is going on with this child? Or what is going on in their environment? And try to delve a little bit deeper. So absolutely, aggression can be part of that presentation. Other things, maybe not sleeping well or having a problem separating Maybe for a younger child wanting to sleep in, you know, their parents' bed because they really don't feel safe. So um, anxiety symptoms, this isn't, you know, PTSD, as we say, post-traumatic stress disorder or acute stress, you know, it's part of the anxiety disorders. And so you have to look for those signs to kind of tease out what's going on. We're talking with Professor Danielle Rock, Chair of Pediatrics and Vice President of Maimonides Infants and Children's Hospital in Brooklyn. And Danielle is an expert in the area of uh, trauma in children, uh, including post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as uh, many of the areas of primary care uh, behavioral health. Danielle, I wonder if you could comment on treatment. Uh, So when do you decide, hey, this is a child I need to refer for some kind of treatment versus, no, I'm going to watch and wait, because that must happen a lot. Yeah, I I think, again, it's a great question and may very much depend on where you are in the country or the kind of resources that you have available to you, okay? So probably the most important thing is obtaining the history and understanding that and understanding the symptoms and obviously doing a good physical exam so you don't miss some obvious things in that child. So depending on the level of the pediatrician's comfort, uh, certainly, um, pediatricians are skilled to be able to take a good history, do a comprehensive exam, a good review system that includes a mental health review system. And then depending on your practice uh, type or location, you may have a co-located model where you have a psychologist, a social worker, and sometimes even a, a child psychiatrist who is co-located and you might do what we call a warm handoff to that mental health specialist who can do a much more thorough diagnostic process to kind of sort out if that child does have PTSD and the kind of treatment that may be most appropriate for that child, whether it's psychotherapy or whether or not there is an indication for any medications. I think uh, pediatricians can certainly do some things that are called cognitive behavioral strategies. So, Danielle, what can the primary care provider do in terms of like maybe providing support or maybe psychotherapy? What can you do that doesn't require a mental health specialist? One is I think you do need to obtain the trauma narrative. You need to understand what the child has experienced. So that's one. You can also understand their symptoms and begin to support the parent in supporting the child. So sometimes one of the things that I do is actually to refer the parent and not the child for some of the mental health coaching to be able to support their child. They're less anxious, for example, and they're able to support that child in separating some exposure. For example, if the child is having separation, 
um, with respect to sleeping and some coping mechanisms. They can do some relaxation techniques. They can certainly understand what triggers there are for themselves and for that child. They can help the child sort of overcome some of the, the symptoms. That's such a lovely, lovely point that you're helping the parent be that 24-7 person comforting the child. Correct. When do you decide that, hey, that's not enough, uh, that I'm going to have to, at what point would you say, nope, we're going to refer you to this formal trauma treatment? Right. So I think when a pediatrician is thinking about referral to formal trauma treatment, it is um, an indication that the child's function has been impaired and that despite giving support to the family, recognizing the exposure to trauma, that that child continues to struggle and be symptomatic. I think that's an appropriate time to refer that child to a competent mental health specialist. You know, uh, as a developmentalist, I'm just thinking you've, you've probably seen many children who had early trauma. Can you just give us a feel like what happens if someone's been traumatized? How does that play out in later life? And when you've seen it kind of work well and maybe the right help got there, and then when you've seen it not work so well because they didn't get the right help? Well, the classic study on that relates to adverse childhood events where adults who then recall their trauma actually were known to have a higher incidence of both medical and psychiatric problems, things like cardiovascular problems, um, you know, hypertension, other things. So, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that the brain is part of the body, so if you traumatize the brain, you're likely to traumatize other things. Now, the things that have worked is the recognition of trauma, okay, the ability to support families by accessing appropriate mental health treatments such as cognitive behavioral treatment and allowing families to recover, allowing that child or that parent to recover from that trauma and to build resilience so that, I mean, there is something called traumatic growth, which doesn't happen necessarily uh, by itself, but that can be supported by the appropriate psychotherapy. Danielle, Wonderful to have you here as an expert in trauma and many aspects of primary care child mental health. We would like to encourage our listeners to tune in to other wonderful programs as a part of this Mayo Clinic series on primary care child mental health. You can download these and other podcasts at www.reachmd.com. Thank you for listening to updates from the Mayo Clinic. And thank you to Shire Pharmaceuticals, whose educational grant makes this program possible. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show and many others, or to download this segment, go to reachmd.com forward slash Mayo Clinic.